HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway Honey today. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network, approximately 12 to 12.45 every Tuesday. I'm joined here in the station today with, uh, of course, Nastasha Hammer lopez and Cooking Issues' own webmaster and friend, Jerry Lavish. Hello, Jerry. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? Hey, Nastasha. Hi, Dave. Busy texting your buddies? Too busy to do a radio show, are you, Nastasha? All right. Call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718 718- Four nine seven two one two eight with any and all of your cooking or non-related cooking questions. So before we start, I'm going to address a little blog business for those of you that go read the blog, and I encourage you, even though I haven't been posting as regularly as I should have. I have like 15 posts that I, that I need to write. Uh, and I'm, it's not that I'm lazy, although that's also true. It's, I actually do have a lot of other stuff going on. And I need to uh, get the ability to just jot off like a couple hundred words uh, hit and hit post. But so far, I haven't been able to, to do that as much as everyone in the world tells me I should, right? Right. I, I, for some reason, I just can't do it. Anyway, uh, so one of the things is Cooking Issues has a forum section that has apparently been overrun. I'm putting Jerry on the spot here. But uh, it's been overrun by spam. And we are actually attempting to solve this problem, right, Jerry? It, it's actually solved. It's solved? It's solved? Yeah. See how little I know? It's been solved. So bars and all the rest out there, please come back. We love you, and we want that stuff to survive and flourish. So we have, uh, I guess, who's running it now? You're running it, and uh, and also Vicky is running it, Victoria, or it just, it's just it's just me. It's just just Jerry. Jerry's the man. Jerry is a, a new father, a, a computer consultant extraordinaire, and we force him to do our blog work on the side. <laughs> uh, Jack, was that a caller I heard coming in? Yeah. Ah, hello, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Hey. Uh, my question is uh, fairly simple. I make pizza dough, and every time I do it, it seems to shrink when I try to roll it out. Hmm. Well, give me your exact procedure. I just make a regular dough. We use a uh, KitchenAid usually. Right. Um, 
you know, food processor with the dough hook and uh, a little rest and stuff arise. How long is the rest? And then when I go to roll it out, it, uh, you know, rolls out pretty good, but as soon as I pull back with the uh, rolling pin, it sort of snakes back into a smaller piece. Yeah, the first thing I look at is uh, your, the dough is probably fairly stiff. I would move to a uh, higher hydration, more, more water in the dough probably is going to help you. And I don't know, like, I'll, give, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll give you another thing is I would move away, if you can, from using a rolling pin. I find that, to me, it negatively affects the texture of the, of the pizza. It's, it, to me, the texture is much better when it's kind of, you don't have to be able to t- flip it in the air, like, you know, like a, like a, but, you know, basically using your fist and stretching it uh, is helpful to me. I always liberally flour it before I, um, before I start, you know, pulling it out. Uh, but I'll tell you my procedure in a, in a nutshell and see if this helps. I use a fairly – I don't use as high a hydration dough as the, as the Naples style, style guys. I'm somewhere usually in the, in the area of like uh, 70, 75%, which is too stiff for real pizza aficionados, but that's kind of what I do. I use a fairly high-protein flour, and so for every 1,000 grams of flour, I'll have in it roughly 700 grams of, uh, of water or 750 grams of water in that range. Uh, seven seven fifty, and uh, a little bit of yeast, and I allow it to do a very very long initial rise. And another th- another thing, it's even more important than the kneading is is if uh, to a really good way to get texture is to make the dough uh, the night before, break it into your pizza size uh, chunks, and then throw them into quart containers covered in your fridge. It's called retarding the dough. That's also going to improve your dough texture and flavor by allowing the yeast to act on it longer. But you have to use a smaller amount of yeast. So for your, te- your texture rolling back, I would say one of the main things is, is if you stretch it out, it won't pull back as much. There's always going to be a certain amount of snapback, but when you roll it, I think it's going to snap back even more. Is this making any sense, or is this not useful at all? <laughs> well, until I try it. Uh, no, parts of it make sense. Um, my general procedure, I start off with the, you know, the sponge is pretty wet, and as I'm uh, needed, and I, I continue to add flour until basically it's sticky, but it's not, um, or it's tacky, but not sticky. Right. That sounds like you know, a, sort of like yeah. a post-it note sort of stickiness. Right, that sounds sort pretty of good. My, my end point. All right. Uh, when I try to do it, uh, I mean, I'm not sure what it was, you know, I was trying to push it on the board to sort of make a disc and let it hang and thin it out that way. Uh, I find that works pretty good until I lay it down flat, and then it, you know, it's like, you know, elastic on uh, your underwear. It sort of shrinks back in real fast. I mean, I, I, maybe you're not proofing it out uh, enough. Uh, maybe you got to let it rise a little longer. You always are going to get a little bit of a little bit of uh, a snapback. Have you done? You, can you pull a window on it? Have you done the window test? Is it stretched yeah. really well? Or is it, okay. yeah, I, I can get a gluten window without any problems. Yeah. So it sounds like your dough is is okay. It's maybe you know o- overstretch it uh, a little bit a little bit thinner before you drop it because I, invariably I get some snapback, but I don't get like rubber bandy snapback. Is and, the dough warm or cold? When you rest it, do you rest it at room temperature, or are you resting it in the fridge? It's at room temperature, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, and, and like I usually make enough so that I wind up uh, dividing it up and, and freezing parts of it. Yeah. And then I thaw it out in the refrigerator. Next day, I let it come to room temperature uh, in the room. And it does, it does the same stuff. Even you, you let it do its actual second... like It's, it's proof out in the room, so it's actually rising, and it's, yeah. and it's dead at room temperature, not cold at all when you, when you do it. Because if, right. it, if it's cold at all, it will snap back uh, a lot more. How's this interesting? You know, if, if you, here's a technique that no one, no one say I do this, all right? No one's going to say I do this. But um, when I make pizza, I usually am making eight fairly large ones at a time, and I don't want to make them to order. So what I'll do is I'll actually I'll use a very minimal amount of flour, just enough to get it on my fist so I can pull it out into shape. 
and then I throw it onto a piece of parchment paper. It'll semi the pizza will semi stick to the parchment paper because it's it it's you know I haven't floured the parchment at all, so the dough will kind of stick to the parchment a little bit, which prevents any contraction. I'll then make my pizza on the parchment, and I'll shove the parchment entirely with the pizza onto the stone for the first 35, 40 seconds up to a minute of baking, depending on how hot my oven is, just until the bottom forms a crust and releases from the parchment. Then I'll quickly shove my peel and pull the parchment out and finish the bake out on it. A couple advantages of this. One, I think I'll solve your snapback problem with it. Two, um, you can make a bunch of pizzas and put them on sheet trays and stack them up in your kitchen ready to bake so you're not making pizzas every time you have to throw them into the oven. Um, and so to me, those are huge advantages. The one thing you have to be careful of, especially because my oven goes up to 850 degrees, is the burning of the paper. So what you have to do is after you put the pizza down, uh, even after you do the sauce or, and whatever, is to trim around the dough with scissors such that there's very little pizza overhanging the edge. And that will prevent you from getting a lot of scorching or, or, uh, or, or burn marks on the, on the paper. And then remember to just get it out of the oven you know, after, after it unsticks. So in my oven, that's 45 seconds or so uh, in your oven, maybe longer. I don't know how hot your oven gets. Maybe- yeah, I, 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 it's about 525 yeah, when I'm using it. Yeah, so you could let it go a little longer, but maybe that would help too and also solve the problem of uh, having to stand around in the kitchen the entire time your family's eating pizzas. Well, it's only two of us, so it's not a problem there. Oh, yeah, yeah, for me, it's like always like 14 people, and so I mean, you know, it's, it's a nightmare to make them you know, as they go in. It just, it just crunches me up. But anyway, give that a shot. See if that helps out. Yeah, I'm just using AP flour. Is that okay, or should I be changing my flour? I mean, I've heard people make with all different uh, hardnesses of flour, and I think obviously your hydration is going to change a little bit. But I, you know, the, my favorite pizzas uh, that I make are made with uh, Sir Galahad, which is a fairly high protein, like but really good. Other than just the protein quality, just a really well milled, nice flour from King Arthur. But it's not unfortunately generally available when I'm making it at home. I u- use uh, Hecker's, which is a fairly their AP is a fairly high protein AP I wouldn't use like a southern style really soft AP if you're using like a good northern style AP um, you know, that's a little bit harder uh, I think it's okay or you can use the better for bread stuff that uh, but I never use the, the King Arthur's better for bread I either use their Sir Galahad or I use Hecker's what about like Caponata zero, double zero I've never used it. I've never bought it. Do you like it for pizza? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are very particular on it, but like you know, uh, I'm I'm lazier than I seem, I'm, and I yeah, seem I'm pretty out lazy. West Coast, where we have different flowers. So. Yeah. You don't. Well, so you're on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have some really, really good flowers out there. You have that real that artisanal mill whose name has flown out of my head for some reason in San Francisco. You can also go to King Arthur, the website. Yeah, and they'll, they'll sell Sir Galahad over the website, right. and that makes a great great dough, but it might be prohibitively expensive to ship it you know, on a batch-per-batch basis. But if you, make yeah. a lot of, if you make a lot of pizza, I know they sell 50-pound sacks. That's how we get it. But anyway, I hope that okay. – how about the, the, the paper sounds like a good idea, though, right? Give that a shot next time around. Great, thanks. Remember parchment, not wax. All right, thanks right. a lot for calling yeah. in. Okay, bye. All right. uh, okay, we had an interesting comment in on the uh, – Extremely fascinated with this uh, uh, irradiation of seeds thing, and it turns out there are other people fascinated, uh, fascinated with it too. So it turns out that after we dropped, uh, the, you know, the bomb um, in World War II, I think horribly, especially the second one, uh, we then went on to do a whole series of nuclear weapons tests in uh, in the air, atmosphere, underground, underwater in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, which make for some amazing viewing, by the way, if you've ever seen the videos of them. It's just I mean, completely compelling 
awesome spectacle. Horrible idea, but completely compelling, awesome spectacle. So one of the things they did was they irradiated uh, seeds, and the, the reason they irradiated them was to see whether or not we could re-germinate our seeds after we had been hit with a nuclear weapon, right? Now, are our seed sto- stores going to be obliterated, or the three people that survived the war, if they happen to have some corn with them, can they grow it again? Okay, so that's, uh, you know, that, that was kind of the testing, but they found out they got some interesting mutations from this, and they started purposely irradiating uh, seeds in an attempt to find a- seeds and and uh, shoots and, and leaves and plants in general because you can also get mutations on the branch of things that are called sports, right, and fruits. So um, they were trying to get new varieties to find a peaceful way to use uh, nuclear radiation, uh, and this spawned an entire movement. Now, I'm fascinated with it, but I don't really know that much about it, and we got a tip-off from uh, Tom Metcalf, our listener Tom Metcalf, who uh, tipped us off to another person who seems extremely interesting. I've never met her, Paige Johnson, who's a, a garden historian, and she has a blog called gardenhistorygirl.blogspot.com. I, always, I never liked that blog, that blogspot. sounds so weird. Blog, 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 blog. Anyway, she is apparently, and apparently from reading it, like one of the world's experts on nuclear, uh, on atomic gardens. She calls them atomic gardens. So I encourage you to read everything she's written on it. She's going to write a book on it. And if you happen to be in London on the 7th of June, she's going to give a speech on it at some uh, like Royal Horticultural Society hoo-ha thingamajig. And I wish I was in London because I'd love to go. It turns out we used to do, we used to have these things called atomic gardens. Here's what they would do, right? They would stick a, a, a pipe into the ground. Uh, full of like you know some some horrible you know gamma radiation uh, you know some radioactive element with again, cobalt something I think uh, they would sink it into the earth um, uh, into a lead enclosure so that you could go look at the garden and the garden was arranged in concentric circles around the radiation source and then as soon as you walked out with your Geiger counters after you collected your irradiated stuff they would raise the radiation source back up and start nuking out the uh, the produce again and there's pictures of them online amazing stuff. Anyway, so uh, thanks, Tom, for that up- update, and we're, s- we're sure to hear more about Atomic Gardens. Man, I wish I could go see that speech. And you could also uh, go to the wedding. In, uh, oh, the, well, he it, doesn't care. Is, is that the 7th? Is that the same no. time? He doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, people keep saying the, the wedding. I'm like, I know someone that's getting married. It's, no, it's like, but, does, but do people really care about this royal yes, wedding? Unfortunately, yes. More so than the, than the Di and uh, Charles thing? No, come on, right? Anyway. It's a natural extension. This is not the... This is not the Royal Wedding Show. If you, this is the Royal Wedding if you, version 2.0. If you, yeah. t- if you tuned in to listen to, uh, to information about the Royal Wedding and whether or not <laughs> what's her fang has gone into an anorexic friendly, frenzy as a result of all the cameras on her, you've turned in the wrong place. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, like, this is like what people tell me. I don't, you know, I wish that my television was in good working order, but I no longer have cable because I told my wife she could cancel cable if I could do X, Y, and Z, never thinking she would actually pick up the phone and cancel cable. So I am cableless. I know nothing. Thank goodness about it's gonna any be of this on stuff. Net, it's going to be on regular. But wait, you have an iPad. Channel. Yeah, but I don't, you can't stream the news that I. You, yeah, you can. Yeah, you not can. the news that I used to watch. No, no. Any, what, what, this is also not the Does Dave Arnold Know What's Going On in the World program. This is only about, well, not only about cooking. Anyway, call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. Commit it, Dave. Wow, 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues.
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m., Hot Grease on the Heritage Radio Network. My favorite title of any program here on the Heritage Radio Network, Hot Grease. Love it. Isn't that the best title ever? Mm-hmm. I wish we could come up with a company name as good as Hot Grease. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Hot Grease. Anyway, call in all your questions, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. All right, so we have an interesting question in from Paul. Paul says, uh, hi. Hi. I'm Jewish, and we're currently celebrating Passover. The first night of Passover um, comprises a Seder night, a big family meal with many readings, songs, and central to this question, symbolic foods. Yes, this is, a, this is true. Uh, one of the many symbolic foods that appears uh, on the central Seder plate is a roasted-slash-burned egg in its shell, which represents the Passover sacrifice from thousands of years ago. Preparing it is a royal pain in the blank-blank-blank, as it has a tendency to explode and create a smelly mess. In the past, I've roasted it in the oven raw, and this year, I first boiled it, then roasted it. Both times it exploded. I then tried making a, which is a nightmare. And I then tried making a small crack in the shell and this did not work either. Do you have any suggestions as to how one could do this reliably without having a huge cleanup job afterwards? Cheers, Paul. Interesting question. Uh, for me, especially for several reasons. One, I used to, uh, when you're in college, I found a microwave and uh, they threw it away because uh, the cord had been, uh, you know, broken and they didn't know how to fix it. So I just fixed the cord. It was a zero dollar fix and I had, that's how I had my microwave in college, right? I didn't really use it to cook food. We used it to see what we could blow up in a microwave, right? So, of course, we did all the stuff that's now since become commonplace. Marshmallows, CDs, which are awesome for about like w- like half a second and they form like like lightning fingers like the Emperor is zapping you from uh, Star Wars. Uh, you know, the, the grape trick. Uh, light bulbs were always the best. I'm, we found a, a case and a half of light bulbs, and I must have blown up the entire case and a half. 300-watt light bulbs are freaking amazing because they light up for a long time before they uh, heat up the envelope of the glass and then explode. One time, actually, I had one blow up such that it didn't shatter. It just blew a hole in the side of a glass so that it looked like one of those high-speed photographs. Can't believe that I lost that. Anyway, uh, one of the fun things to blow up in a microwave is an egg. The problem with an egg is that it doesn't reliably explode in the microwave when you nuke it. And you can nuke it for like like three or four minutes, and just when you think it's not going to blow up, you walk up to turn off the microwave, and bam, she blows up. And I have to tell you, it is extremely impressive, and there's no piece in there bigger than your pinky. And yes, Paul, it picky, pinky you know, nail, that is. And yes, Paul, it does smell god-awful. So I feel for you. However, I have roasted eggs in the oven many times um, without them exploding. Uh, and I haven't done any particular prep work on them. And I'll, I'll tell you what, wh- why and what. So um, uh, Hervé Thies, uh, you know, a person that we like to make fun of here uh, on, in, on Cooking Issues, he's a French dude uh, who, you know, talks about, he's the guy who keeps saying molecular astronomy is a good term no matter how much we tell him that that term is kind of disgusting sounding. Anyway, it's his philosophy, his feeling anyway, that a 65 degrees Celsius uh, egg has a perfect runny yolk in it because he cooks them in the oven. Uh, right? Anyone who has a circulator out there, anyone out there in circulator land knows that a 62 degree egg is runny and a 63 
63 degree egg is set. A uh, 65 degree egg is most certainly not runny in the center. And it's, this may sound like a crazy like angels dancing on the head of a pin for people who don't cook using circulators and low temperature, but this is this is like I don't know I don't know what it's the equivalent of. It's I, I don't know. It's it's crazy. It's, it's just like nuts. Cooking a cake at 250 or 400. Yeah, bingo. It's like yeah, no, it's like cooking a cake in like a pizza oven at like 800 or like or like uh, or like deep frying water. The only person I know who does that is Alexander Ta- Talbot using uh, methylcellulose. Anywho, so uh, it's crazy. But uh, to the reason why it doesn't work is because you get evaporative cooling off of the egg when he puts it into his, because he does it in an oven at 65. And as it's evaporating off, the temperature in the egg drops and it's actually only 62 inside the egg, which is why it works for him, even though it's a theoretically flawed technique. So to prove and test this, I cooked a bunch of eggs in the oven at a fairly low temperature, though, at like, you know, uh, 250, 300, 325 in that range. Fahrenheit now. We're back on Fahrenheit. God's, God's way to bake. Anyway, so... Excuse me, all you Celsius people. Anyway, uh, don't worry. I cook meat in Celsius. So uh, what's interesting is you can look at the eggs. If the eggs don't have marks on the shell from where uh, water is evaporating out, and you can see them because they'll develop little brown spots uh, on the egg where the stuff's evaporating off. Because as water evaporates out of, the, uh, out of the shell, out of the egg itself, it undergoes Maillard reactions at a very low temperature, like similar to the way they would if you cooked them in a pressure cooker or if you did hameen eggs by putting them in a pot and letting them cook overnight in a bread oven to eat uh, f- you know, for, your, uh, for your Sabbath meal on Saturday night. Right? So they should turn brown. Right in the shell, even without burning, right, the, which is amazing. And but if you don't notice little um, little bits of water or pinhole brown marks all around the eggshell, it means that that eggshell is sealed. So maybe your eggs are coated with something like wax, or maybe you have a really. I use typically use crappy supermarket eggs that break really easily. Maybe you have uh, like a free range egg that is really like has a really good shell. Like I know uh, Wiley Dufresne right now is doing an egg, and he's using some really fancy eggs with really happy chickens. Those happy chickens have very thick shells, so he's having a really pain in the butt problem uh, shelling them all. Um, so I don't know what temperature you're running at, Paul, but try running at a, sl- a lower temperature. It's still going to turn brown, even at 350 or 325, because the Maillard reaction is going to be happening at those low temperatures. So don't worry about having those temperatures not be that high. Uh, roast it lower, and I've never had one blow on me using uh, that technique. If you roast it higher, you, you might be able to build up pressure fast enough to have it explode. Apparently you can, because you've told me you do. Um, so anyway, Paul, give that a shot, and let us know how, how it works out. How's that sound? Sounds good, Dave. Good advice. We hope. I think if you're not getting the little brown marks, that, that the evaporative release is also a release of pressure. Yeah, it's re- yeah exactly. So if, you're, if, you're, if you get those little pinholes, it means you're releasing pressure. You're not going to blow it. If you're not getting pinholes, you're building pressure. She, she's going to blow. Right. right. And just put cracking the shell in one place. Especially Here's another thing. If you, if you actually, if you boil it beforehand, you might be having some water trapped inside. might be harder, actually, to get the water out of the center. I wouldn't, I, I put them in raw. And you might be plugging the plugging the maybe yeah shell as well I, I put them in raw uh uncovered uh like you know on directly on the rack which i shouldn't do because they might break uh and and that's uh that's how i do it and i haven't had one blow yet but maybe we should well next time it's somebody else's house by the way <laughs> I'll, I'll try it at a higher temperature and i thoroughly recommend that if you are going to blow up an egg in the microwave if you if at first you don't succeed try again it takes longer than you think if every four eggs maybe one of them will blow up and please do it in somebody else's microwave right uh you know someone that you don't like like next time you get invited to someone's house to a party that you hate and there's a million people there and you can't believe you got invited there just toss a couple eggs in the microwave and walk away don't really do that don't don't do that 
I'm getting a look like I can't believe you're recommending this. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. When you're getting ready to replace your microwave, the last thing to do in the current microwave would be to blow up an egg. You would not believe what my microwave looked like. It had all <laughs> kind of scorch marks on the inside. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I've done every awful thing you can do to a microwave. Well, I want to repeat that I could probably make the statement that no animals were harmed during the process of this testing. No, everyone always asks me to, like, you know, have you put a live X, Y, or Z? Into, no, no, no. Like, especially vacuum machines. Everyone, every, every class I've taught in sous vide, not the, you know, the one for professionals who come in because they, they got a lot to worry about anyway. But, like, every class I would teach on it, they, every, someone would ask me, have I put a live X, Y, or Z in the vacuum machine? I'm like, no, no, no. No. Uh, although I do have a friend of mine, and this isn't one of those, a friend of mine, but it's really me, a friend of mine who um, threw a cockroach-infested piece of kitchen equipment into the microwave because he just didn't know what to do. He's like, ah, like this, threw it in the microwave, turned it on, they pop like popcorn is what oh, I'm told. Wow. Yeah. I haven't done that in the microwave, but apparently that, that is a true enough fact story. Okay. Uh, Rolf Wind writes in. He says, hello, Nastasha. Doesn't care for me. Likes you better. <laughs> Anyway. Well, he's writing to me. All right, fair. Uh, I have a non-tech question for the show sometime. It's not today. Today is a tech question. I've read widely disparate opinions on the suitability of previously frozen meat for making cured pork products. Specifically, I want to cure pork belly, which is a very good idea, for bacon and pancetta and jowl for guanciale. Guanciale is one of the world's great products. Nastasha's giving me a squinky face. How the heck could you give me a squinky face on gu- guanciale? I, over, I overate guanciale. So? I don't like it anymore. I've overeaten lots of things. Yeah, I just don't like it. You don't. What does that mean? You don't like it. But you like bacon, mm-hmm. and you like pancetta. Yes. And you don't like guanciale. No, not really. It has like a sock flavor. No. Th- that wasn't. That was like <laughs> moldy guanciale. Yeah, I'm here to say no. That is not the case. I prefer. Um, there's a, a bunch of the artisanal guanciales out there. I think a bit too dry. I like a little. Uh, I like a, a moister guanciale. For those of you not hip to the fact, guanciale is cured pork jowl. You can cure it either flat or you can cure it uh, rolled up or you can cure it flat and then roll it up. Um, I, I like them all. I, 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 the one I use is rolled up. It has a higher fat percent. And they make something similar in the South called jowl bacon, but um, it's not, it doesn't taste the same to me because it doesn't have the same spice mixture on it that I usually get from guanciale. Uh, in my, to my taste, there is no finer topping for pizza in the world than guanciale. Guanciale might be the best thing you can put on a pizza, going back to pizza. And what I like to do is, um, if you throw it on there, it doesn't need a lot of heat. You can just throw it on there raw and it'll, it'll crisp you up. Slice it in chunks. I slice it really thin um, because it's mostly the fat and I like the texture of the fat when it's real thin and basically just the, the heat looks at it and, and kind of shrivels it up a little bit but doesn't make it hard and doesn't take away from the unctuousness of it. Have you done and, lardo in pizza yet? Uh, I have, yes, I have. Uh, I, I like lardo is also a good product. Do you like lardo, Nastasha? Mm-hmm. So you like bacon, pancetta, and lardo, but not guanciale, folks. Now you know what I have to deal with oh, on a daily wow. basis. Oh. Nastasia, I guess you don't like carbonara. No, I do like carbonara, but I use pancetta instead of pancetta. Which, by the way, on carbonara, please. Now, look, I'm all for authenticity, right? But we are in the U.S. of A here, oh, and the smokiness accentuates the dish very nicely, thank you. And I think bacon tastes delicious no. in a carbonara. No, yes, no, it do- no. You're yeah, wrong. I am not wrong. You're wrong. I'm not saying it's authentic, right? Authentic, like, you know, okay, authentic uh, uh, carts don't have motors in them. And yet, I enjoy a cart with a motor on it to help me carry the stuff around. Authenticity Dave, isn't everything. Dave, I'm going to tell you that you may like bacon 
cream and noodles. That's a good thing, but it's not carbonara. Yeah. Well, no, but I'm, I'm so saying it's not authentic, but it's delicious. So for everyone out there saying that you that like somehow you know your taste buds are shot, or you know it's just because you're an American, or just because X, Y, and Z. Hello, smokiness tastes good in that dish. It's just not carbonara. It's, it's delicious. Yeah, see, Jack? Oh, Jack, that's for last week's comment, huh, that I made for you. <laughs> I, look, I'm here to say, I, I'm a, look, I also, I'm a firm believer in having the authentic dish the way it's supposed to be prepared without any embellishments, without any changes, preferably in the location and by the people who make it. So you know, because a lot of times it isn't just the preparation. It's the specific ingredients that someone has in a particular place cooked differently. They taste differently. The environment's different. Their cooking utensils are different. The way they handle ingredients is different. So if possible, you should go taste the, uh, taste the dish made by the people who are supposed to make it. However, once you've tasted that and you have a target in your head, feel free to do anything you want to it, including using bacon, which is straight up delicious. Um, okay, I can't believe we've totally, we've totally sidestepped poor Rolf's question. Okay, so he wants to cure pork belly for bacon and pancetta and, and jowl for guanciale. But the heritage breed meats that he likes to use are available to him only in the frozen form. Does freezing alter the muscles in such a way as to change the salt curing process? And does the method of freezing make a difference? Aside from these specific, specific questions, any insight on meats or cuts or applications that are especially freezing friendly or unfriendly? Thanks. He li- likes the show in the blog. Regards, Rolf. Well, thank you for liking the show in the blog. We appreciate it. Here, here's the story. First of all, it used to be in the United States that all the cuts of meat that you were going to use for curing uh, all the pork was frozen for a deep freeze, actually, for a while to, to cure any trichinella in advance of curing it, which also is going to kill trichinella, you know, the parasite. Very few, uh, you know, the worm. I love a disease that's measured in worms per cubic centimeter muscle mass, right? Anyway. So uh, previously, uh, most if not all of the meat that we uh, cured is uh, frozen, right? Now, it, it turns out that um, – wait, there's a caller? Yep. All right, this is going to take a while. So, Rolf, I'm going to come back to your question. I'm going to take the caller and come back, and we'll talk about freezing and, uh, and meats. C- caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. It's Brian in San Francisco. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? Good. Um, so I got a bunch of gift certificates to, like, Amazon and Crate and Barrel and stuff because I got, I got married pretty recently. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. Um, looking to get some new pots and pans and just kind of upgrade from the, the crappy um, mishmash uh, that, that I have. And um, I'm having some trouble trying to figure out exactly what to invest in. I, I want to get stuff that's going to last. And um, what, what, are, what are your recommendations? So you're looking for a, like a standard pot and pan set? I don't necessarily need, need a set, but, um, you know, I have, particularly I have some pots that aren't, aren't very good. I have uh, one pan that I like. I have some that are um, nonstick that are kind of old and, and decrepit, and, and uh, they're not so nonstick any, any longer. Um, I have thought about cast iron, but I'm not sure that that's the way I want to go for, for everything. Right. Um, okay, he, here are my thoughts, and then you can bounce some stuff off me. One, ditch the old, uh, ditch the old uh, uh, nonstick. Get a new – should, everyone should have at least one nonstick lying around. I have a fairly big one and a fairly small one. Assume that they will get obliterated over the course of a couple of years and that you'll have to throw them away. Is, 
like I'm 12, 14? St- like 14. I have like a 14. But I have big burners. 14 and an 8, right? Yeah. And so I, so I get those. And, and then I assume that those things are going to be uh, gone after a couple of years of use. Still, I'm not saying to get a cheap one. Uh, I don't know whether ScanPan fixed the problems that they used to have. ScanPan used to have some problems, but they're fairly easy. And they actually have a warranty on them. So if you break them or you know, ruin the coating, you can send them back, right? Invest in, oh, one, invest in one good pressure cooker. If you get a good pressure cooker like Kun Recon, even though it's very expensive, the pot itself is quite a good pot. And so you can cook with it without scorching on the bottom if you're doing onions or something before you're going to add liquids to it to do uh, a braise or, or a pressure cooker, right? Get one okay. piece of cast iron. Uh, pref- uh, I have a whole bunch of cast iron. But get bunch. like – well, I would not get a new piece of cast iron. I would get – I would go to – seriously, go to a thrift store and find a piece of cast iron that has a polished face on it. Cur- current cast iron has a pebbly surface. It's called as cast, whereas they used to sometimes do a machine surface finish or sanding on the inside surface of the pan. And those ones, when they're seasoned, are like glass, and they're awesome, right? But they can't find a manufacturer. You don't want the enamel-coated cast iron. You want, you want one that's – well, no, enamel's fine. Enamel's fine. For enamel-coated cast iron, I would only get a Dutch oven. That's what I have. I have, like, the La Crusade Dutch oven, but any one of those ca- enameled Staub, any one of those guys uh-huh. uh, is going to be fine. But what I mean is, like, I would get one uh, – I would uh, for everything else, I think the cast iron is going to be a pain in your butt unless you want to get a muffin pan or something because they're really heavy to lug around. Um, I would get um, – but I, would, I like having a cast iron uh, skillet for biscuits and things like that. And, and just because every once in a while I just feel like it. I feel like having cast iron because you can put it on the stove and crank the heat really high and walk away from it and not worry about it because it's not going to warp out on you and it's, and, and it's going to be good. But I would get one from a thrift store or from a, uh, a, a used source so long as it's not been scrubbed, it's not too rusty, and the surface is glassy smooth. And you, it's hard to get nowadays because they're, they're rough and, and pebbly, but I would get separately from your enameled one, right? Uh, I wouldn't subject an enameled one to the super high heat that I was suggesting just a black, you know, put a black cast iron skillet on, right? Now, for your standard pots and pans, I would go for any high quality pan that uh, you like the that you like the look of. I use All Clad at home, and they've stood up to years of constant abuse. I don't have any fancy All Clad, but I'm not shilling out for All Clad either. It's just this is what I I use at home, and I get a, a fairly wide variety. You're going to need a couple sizes of sauce pan, uh, and you know at least one small like a like a skillet. Uh, and then uh, you know a, a larger stock style pot. It, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on a giant stock pot. The giant stock pot is the thing you should have that's cheap because you're only going to cook liquids in it, and it does not matter the quality of the pot if all you're going to be doing is boiling water in it, unless it looks so ugly that you can't stand you know uh, looking at it in your house, right? So all of like I tend to go cheap on my huge pots that are only going to have water boiling in them. Is this making any sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. Um, what do you what, what do you think? Um I'm so like a, I understand what you're saying about the every everyday pan, and are those what are those made of? Like the all clad, all clad. Are they steel? Whether they, uh, they have like an aluminum core? What's the? Yeah, they have they have an aluminum core, and they have stainless steel. Uh, um, and a lot of them, I think now the, a lot of the all clads have a. Um, the ability to go on induction fairly efficiently. They have, like, I guess it's either magnetic stainless or, or the stainless itself is good enough with induction that they can run induction or they can run uh, or they can run off of gas or electric. But you need that aluminum slug in the center for uh, rapid and even heat conduction. Also, the Allclad has an insane warranty. Really? I've sent, I've sent two pans back 
I've never had to I've send actually it. sent my stick, my uh, my non-stick back twice, and they sent me a brand new one. My one gripe with Allclad is that the inside of the pan, you can see where the handle is riveted on. Now, I've seen in, in the school, I've seen those fail from extreme abuse. But at home, they've never failed. But the one problem with them is, is they are difficult to clean out around the rivets. But that's my only real... That's my only real gripe. Every little other handle. What do you say? Little boy torch will help. <laughs> yeah, uh, the only uh, the only time uh, the uh, only pans I've had that have had welded handles on, I've broken those welds off. So the rivets wow, I've rivets never broken. Um, Barkeeper's friend is also something that uh, makes it easy to clean. Yeah, get rid of this. So spend your money on the stuff that is going to see a lot of high heat. You're going to be frying, sautéing with. Don't spend the money on something that's going to see mainly water. The exception being. Uh, I would spend the money on on like a Kuhn Recon uh, pressure cooker if you can if you can afford it. They're expensive. They're like they're like two three hundred dollars, right? Yeah, for one pop, that's expensive. Yeah. That's like the in- gift certificate. Yeah, but but he's got to look. He's got to also buy all these other pots and pans, you know. But he, for price of one, uh, uh, you know, Kuhn Recon and get the big one, by the way. You know, you you could get a whole set of uh, a starter set of all clads, you know. But the pressure. What do you so what do you think about copper? Um, I, you know, I've seen some like copper lining. Um, yeah, do you enjoy cleaning yeah. things a lot? I mean, just interior copper lining. Usually, the copper slugs aren't big enough to have that much of an advantage. Copper is a better heat conductor than aluminum. Copper is the ultimate material from a heat transmission standpoint, and they have a nice hefty weight to them. They're extremely expensive. If the copper is showing, they're very hard to clean and keep clean. And uh, the other problem is, is usually a lot of the people that have copper pants, they don't have enough copper in them, so you're not really getting the advantage. Whereas the aluminum slug pans have a real thick slug of aluminum on the bottom of them and you can look look at the bottom of your pan before you buy it you should see it's going to have like a little basically shelf of aluminum underneath that you can see it in, in many pans the bottom of the pan should be like a quarter inch thick yeah they're thick and that's what you really uh-huh. really want so i wouldn't spend i wouldn't go the extra money on copper unless you like to polish things like thomas keller's like that he likes to polish things well uh you know but that's the only reason i think to when i bought it. my copper slug eight years ago ten years ago that was when the aluminum slug really wasn't a big deal, and it was either copper or nothing. Oh, yeah. So now I think that with the aluminum slugs, you don't, it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah, I have all, you know, and, you know, then there's a question of for your cheap big stock pot, is it okay to go all aluminum? You know, do you believe that aluminum touching the food is bad? Um, I don't, and I, one of my big stock pot is aluminum because it's very lightweight and it's very tough and big, but uh, like six gallons. I use, my giant stock pot is a turkey fryer stock pot, right. six, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really the cheapest way to get one of those things, but you have to be willing to have, it's ugly, and you have to be willing to cook in aluminum. The the only downside of that is I like to take that thing and stick it on an induction burner. Yeah, well, it depends on if you have induction or not. What do you have out there in San Francisco? You have induction gas. What do you have? I have gas. Nice. I like gas. Although induction's awesome. If I if I you know, but gas is unfortunately from an energy usage standpoint still the way to go here in the U.S. Has this been helpful at all? Yeah, this is a, this has been really great. Um, I also read something that like many restaurants, basically they buy like uh, cheaper pans um, just because like they get so beat up. Like you were saying, like at the school, they get really beat up, and they just like go through them like every six months. It depends on the restaurant. So and it depends on the philosophy of the restaurant. I mean, I think like the finer restaurants, the philosophy is you treat all your equipment nicely, you treat all your food nicely, and you have decent stuff. Now, if you know you're going to abuse something. On purpose, right? Or there's a, a, a process that, obliter- that obliterates things as a matter of course. The reason, like, well, we use sizzle, sizzle platters and whatnot. Those things are made of something that's not that expensive. But in general, the very high-end restaurants, they have respect for the food and the thing that touches the food, right? It's like a top-down respect for 
food that trickles down onto the plate and to the customer. In a less expensive restaurant where you're hiring someone who you do not trust, you know, there's no reason to hand that person a good piece of equipment because you don't think that they're going to respect it. You know, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a firm believer in not spending a lot of money if there's no use to it. But if, if there's a use to it, right, if the heat is more even and therefore the food is going to be better, then get a better piece of equipment and treat it nicely. You know what I mean? I, I, I do, um, and I, I have some opportunity to get some nice stuff, which is why, why I called in. Yeah. Um, do most restaurants use, like, the all-clad, or do they end up using, like, you know, fancy fancy French brands and stuff like that it just that aren't accessible to... Um, it's it's chef to chef, but I, I see a lot of all clad out there. Well, a lot of restaurants they they exploit that uh, that lifetime warranty. You know, after they've oh. scrubbed it, they they you know because they get scrubbed with a you know with a Brillo pad, and when they get really thin, and they, you see it start to develop cracks, they just send it back to all clad. All clad sends another one. That's great, great. Okay, it sounds like that's the way to go with the warranty. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Have fun outfitting your kitchen. Nothing's yeah, more fun than buying bye. stuff. Bye. All right, bye. All right, so uh, back to uh, Rolf's question here. So he's uh, going to cure pork belly to, to refresh you what's going on and the freezing what happens. When you freeze meat, uh, what's going on is that, uh, especially if you freeze it slowly, is that you're not freezing the water on the inside of the cells. You're actually, the water is extracted from the cells and the cells get somewhat dehydrated. The crystals form on the outside of the, of the cells, right? Uh, there's also a certain amount of the, the fact that those crystals, then as you store them in the freezer, they grow and they shrink, they grow and they shrink, and they puncture the cells, right? Then as it uh, thaws, the water needs to reabsorb into the meat, but, but because you've ruptured some of the cells and because it's impossible to get all of the water back into the meat, you lose some liquid, right? And that's what's called drip loss. Now, things that are very fragile, like berries, you notice they just turn into a watery mess because all the, shell, uh, the cells get kind of hurt, right? And that's really what's going on is that you've perforated some of the cells and you've lost some of the moisture. So in theory, what happens in terms of actual penetration is that because you've ruptured some of the cells, there's a lot of liquid movement on the inside, you should be able to cure it faster, right? It would, it will take the cure uh, even faster. So it's not going to hurt, um, it's not going to hurt it from a curing standpoint to have uh, frozen it. Now, uh, you, you, there are some people I read on the, on the internet because uh, I didn't even know it was an issue. There are some people on the internet who think that it's going to ha- have more of a bacterial problem if you thaw it and then cure it because I guess they're presuming that it's going to take a while to thaw it out, uh, but presuming that you have a good purveyor who froze it right, you know, when it when it was ready, shipped it to you frozen, and then you're thawing it and then quickly curing it. I don't think ex- any extra bacteria from the time it takes to thaw is going to be a big deal. In fact, you don't, I'm not saying this, but you could probably start the curing process as it's thawing, even because the salt will uh, help ex- you know accelerate the um, the thaw down. Now, um, the one thing I will say is that you probably should not cure the bacon and then freeze it because what happens is unless you have a vacuum packing machine, um, cured meats, uh, especially pork, because it, believe it or not, the, the fat in pork uh, has a good degree of unsaturation to it. It's very unstable uh, once it's been cured in salt and exposed to oxygen, has a tendency to go rancid. So if you freeze bacon and it's not in a very, very good um, uh, vacuum pack along with some other antioxidants like, for instance, smoke or maybe even some, like, you know, some uh, ad- I wouldn't add ascorbic acid, but like uh, something like sodium metabisulfite or something like that as an antioxidant along with vacuuming. You'll notice that even in the freezer, uh, your uh, bacon will get rancid very quickly and start developing the off flavors of fat rancidity. So I would definitely, if you were going to deal with a frozen thing, uh, not freeze it after it's uh, cured. I would c- freeze it fresh, thaw it, cure it, 
and then use it. Unless you're doing a super long cure when it's going to stick out, stay out for a long time anyway, in which case the water levels are lower. Correspondingly, your rancidity will be less. And believe it or not, the flavor that we like in a lot of old cured meats actually is partially fat rancidity, kind of in a way that makes it taste good, right? So it's not always necessarily bad. Like one person's rancidity is another person's delicious two-year-old Iberico uh, Bayota-fed jamon. So let me see whether I've answered all of your questions. I th- I think so. I would go ahead and cure and cure those uh, cure those things. Now, one last question I have in from Brian uh, Heslop. Uh, he says the recent museum fundraiser sounds like it was incredible, uh, and it was, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very upset. I missed it. Yeah, I know. It was it was it was quite good. He has a question about Wiley's dish. Now, for those of you that didn't see the blog, Wiley's dish was it was called Bone Appetit Bone Appetit, and because I gave him caveman food, uh, and one of the things in it, you can go on the blog and look at it. One of the things was uh, enoki mushrooms that were uh, looked like twigs, and he says, "How did he make it?" And I forget. I think he soaked them in um, in some sort of like flavorful broth, like soy, and then uh, dehydrated them. And they they that's the only part of the dish I got to taste, and they tasted really good. Did you taste that no. dish? Mm-mm. Yeah, by the Nastasha and I were actually running dishes. No, because, you were, but yeah. Anyway, I was running dishes, and by the time I came back to try and taste the like the leftovers, uh, they were all gone. Uh, he had another question: Have I ever looked at importing gear from uh, manufacturers in China? I've looked at it, but the problem is I never have enough of a minimum quantity order. And the other problem is is that unless you know a specific manufacturer, I'll tell you some stories from Philip Preston, good friend Philip Preston from PolyScience. It, it tries to import Chinese gear all the time, and he's had some things that he's had really good luck with, and some things that he's had really bad luck with. If you uh, if you if you go over there and have someone build something to spec, then they will build it to your spec, and it will probably be good. I mean, a lot of really amazing stuff is built. For instance, modernist cuisine Jerry is looking at is was printed in China um, because the printers over there were so good. They were the only printers that uh, Mirvold and Chris Young could get that would they print the quality they want. Yeah, um, so and I'm sure there's millions of blog posts out there on, on uh, how awesome the printing is on Mirvold's book, and it is, uh, and you know Chris and all this. Anyway, but um, what were we talking about before that? Since Nastasha interrupted me by by doing the watch point Chinese. Chinese, yes. So, but the problem is, is if you, if you buy something over there that was built to somebody else's spec, it might not be your spec. So I know he tried a couple of uh, um, Chinese model import vacuum machines, and the problem was is that they look. I mean, they they weren't as robo as the ones that we get because that wasn't part of the QC process. But also, if you vacuumed a lot of liquids in them, it fried some piece of componentry in there. It caused smoke and almost a fire. Right. So unless you know something works, like for instance, like if you go online, look on 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 blogs for whatever people are doing and people will have tried X, Y, and Z cheap Chinese stuff. So for instance, everyone I know who buys the miniature mills and lathes buys the Sieg ones that come in and they're all made by one or two manufacturers in China and they work with some known problems but everyone knows what those problems are and they fix them. Ditto with laser cutters. Ditto with um, you know certain like uh, plasma cutting tools. Things like that. So it's just look online and don't be the first person in the US to try it out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so uh, that's my that's or my. Buy one uh, and send it to Dave, and he'll try it out. Yeah, for right. You. If anyone if anyone wants to send me some crap for free, I'm happy to test it. Right, right. <laughs> sure, we have time. Yeah, right. Like we have, we're made of time. Anyway, this has been this week's cooking issues. Come back next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfast within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. <laughs>